Hey, hi, hello, what's up? How how are we? How is everybody? Um Yeah, well that's good. Um <laughs> Uh Yeah, I I don't really know how to start my shows anymore. Um I try to do that little intro, right? And I've gotten much better at it, right? Let me do it for you real quick. Uh, howdy, and welcome back to In Defense of Liberation, the show working towards and educating about true people's liberation. But it always seems forced, and like, I don't know. Somebody come up with something for me. I don't think anybody actually listens to this show, but somebody come up with something for me. Um, that sounds cool. (laughs) Yeah, so I hope everybody's doing well. Um... I am not, but you know, it's, it's a vibe. Um, I, uh, I think we're all kind of struggling during this pandemic. Um, of course, for many different reasons, but, um, my job sucks and like my living situation sucks. So that hasn't been fun, but, um, I got a new mic, uh, and I've been able to record two episodes at home. So like things are getting better. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so today I wanted to talk to you guys about um, a few different things, just kind of like venting what's been on my mind, you know, because I've been doing a lot of reading um, and I've been doing a lot of reaching out to people uh, and conversing with as many folks as I can, uh, because I think that that's incredibly important to building what we're trying to do, you know, uh, true people's liberation, uh, socialist revolution requires people, right? And like... Um, not for nothing we also what we're advocating for is is love is solidarity right is like helping people and so in order to help people we have to know people we have to talk to people we have to know what their needs are right um the intention should never be to be some kind of white savior type that goes okay we have a solution and here's the solution and then you know try expect that you're going to be able to walk to say I don't know, wherever, in you know, some city that has homeless problems and just look at the city and go, okay, I have a solution. Like, no, you have to talk to the people. You have to understand the history. You have to really get the context, right? Um, and so our philosophy is one that is based on community, is one, uh, based on society, and one based on people, um, or at least my philosophy is, and I believe that that should be the philosophy of the left, because I think that if we're working towards anything else, we're um, betraying the goal, right? Um, but there's a lot of people's movements that are being waged all over the world. You know, in Haiti right now, uh, shout out uh, Haiti. They got a big thing going on there, which I don't know much about, so I'm not going to pretend like I do. Um but there's movements all over the world. There's the movement in the Philippines that have been going on for years, Hong Kong, um, in South America, you know, you got Bolivia, you got Venezuela, you got Nicaragua, like all these countries that are suffering uh, awful oppression, but are fighting and resisting uh, against that oppression um, and winning in a lot of cases, right? And that is incredible. So I think that I, I had a conversation with my grandma, and I actually really love talking to my grandma. If y'all don't, um, figure that out, because, like, grandmas are tight, and, like, I'm not trying to press you or anything like that, but, like, my grandma is tight, 
and yo, if you want to hit up my grandma, like I'm sure that she'd love to talk to you. Um, <laughs> but I was talking to my grandma today and like something kind of connected for me in a way that it really hasn't before. Um, and that is the idea, like I said, that this is a, this is really a movement that's based off of people. Right. And like, I've heard people say that and it's like made sense, but not really connected for me. But like, this really is a movement for people and not just the people that exist today, but people kind right human beings because right now on this planet because of the fact that capitalism exists and a myriad of other you know things that we're going to discuss here in a minute there's billions of people who can't eat tonight who don't have homes who don't have proper medication education and have you know live awfully uh bad quality lives and that's incredibly, incredibly awful. But it's also uh, easily solved. And I don't mean to, like, say that, okay, guys, we're just going to snap our fingers and there goes the problems. But the the whole problem is just simply that the things that exist are not given to the people who need it, right? Um, because in a lot of places like America, we exist among abundance right we throw away 550 billion dollars worth of food every single year we have houses that sit empty office buildings that sit empty while 500,000 some odd people lay on the side of the road and die right now in texas because of the weather conditions you know um and that's just simply because of their economic status in this country simply put people die because they don't have money and that is our ridiculous, it's a stupid thing. It's fucking stupid. It really is. Because it makes no sense. There is no reason why that should be other than the fact that it is. You know, and we can talk about the history, and we're going to, and we have before, and that's kind of the whole point of this podcast, right? Um, but like, because some people don't have some stupid piece of paper in their pocket, they don't get to eat tonight. How the hell is anybody supporting something like that? That, to me, is ridiculous, right? So I had that conversation with my grandma, and then on top of that, I've also just been thinking, like I said, about the fact that we got to start reaching out to one another and we got to start building solidarity. And I think that it's truly... And we're going we're gonna to dive deeper into this here, so don't, don't get too upset. But I really think that it's time that we start we stop dedicating so much time to trying to create uh, eligible political participants, because right now there are active forms of dual power being built that are proving to be far more helpful and far more useful to actually solving the problems that capitalism is creating than participating in any kind of electoralism is. And I think that there is some use to electoralism, but like I said, we're going to get into that. And then the last thing that I really wanted to talk about, I ought to fucking write that down because I already don't know what I'm supposed to be talking about. Hold up here. <laughs> so and just kind of the last thing I really wanted to talk about is the fact that like, what we're working towards is an incredible process, right? What we're talking about is completely upheaving um, the very fabric of the reality that the world exists in, capitalism. Um, and because of that, 
there's a process and a progression that happens. And if you do not understand, you know, theory, um, for whatever reason, um, that's what I want this podcast to kind of be about, uh, and, and dedicated towards, you know, understanding these things a little bit deeper. That, that progression is not going to come, like I said earlier, at the snap of a finger. And so there's a lot of organizations that have it in their mind because they just read, you know, the manifesto for the first time that like, you know, we got to We got to build up our cadre and then we got to just fucking go at it. And like, that's not going to help anyone either. Right. And so like, we're going to talk a little bit about opportunism. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, accelerationism. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, the importance of theory. Um, and I know that to some that uh, might come as a, an annoyance because there's a lot of those folks online who are like, uh, if you don't read theory, then you're not a true leftist. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, but we're going to talk about why theory exists, why it's important to read, and what answers uh, it can give us, and why people read it in the first place. You know, why do why do people read texts that were written 150 years ago by some you know white folks? So first and foremost, let's talk about you know the conversation that I had with my grandma, like I said, and um, how this is a movement of people, right? All across the country right now, so I live in America, for those of you who don't know, you might be tuning in for the first time, shout out to you, thanks for listening. I didn't really do an intro like I normally do, but, you know, hopefully you enjoy the show so far. Um, there's so many people across this country right now that are suffering worse than they ever have before. Um, something that I read recently was A People's History of the United States, and it really brought this attention to th- this uh class that Howard Zinn refers Howard Zinn refers to as the guards, right? So there has always been this class in American society uh, and in most settler colonial societies that has been placed just above the lowest class as kind of a mediator between the ruling class and the working class. We know that as the middle class, but that doesn't really quite sum up what that is right because for example in america in um the early colonial settler days you had a man by the name of nathaniel bacon uh you folks might know that name from bacon's rebellion um quick summation bacon came from england he was a descendant of sir francis bacon so he was quite wealthy he came to america with two plantations already in his ownership uh because he got into a fight with his father-in-law god what what a relatable thing right so we just go to america and own two plantations um well then he found out that he wasn't allowed to go any further west he wasn't allowed to go into the uh what was called back then indian country right Actually, I don't even know if it was referred to as Indian country back then, but that's that's something that I'm still learning, so I apologize if that was incorrect. Um, but, like, he wanted to continue expanding, and a lot of settlers at that time were facing uh, a lot of frustrations towards the, the British crown 
because they weren't able to, you know, settle any further west. And now there were so many people living in these small settlements, you know, the, the most of whom were extremely poor, without jobs, without um, any kind of um, support for themselves. And so they were just living in awful, awful conditions on top of one another. And so they obviously wanted space for themselves, and they weren't allowed to do so. So in the Virginia colony, um, the governor was William Berkeley, and William Berkeley and Nathaniel Bacon got into it because Nathaniel Bacon recognized that the wealth that Berkeley held was representative of Great Britain at the time, and the former, you know, ruling class and the oppression of the settlers who wanted to further expand west you know boohoo whatever we're not going to get into that but so he took the anger that existed in those people and he centered it on his enemy william berkeley and you know subsequently the british crown and that is kind of the story of america you know that's actually exactly how this country came to be if you read a people's history of the united states you will learn that um the majority of people who fought in the Revolutionary War obviously had no staked interest in the Revolutionary War because their actual oppressors were the wealthy class in American colonies who owned everything, who owned all the power, owned all the wealth, all the land, and then created awful living conditions for the majority of people. That wasn't because of the British crown. That was because of the people who were directly doing that to them right then and there. But somehow or another the sons of liberty and other organizations were able to convince the people that they were of the people and therefore directed their anger not at themselves the sons of liberty but at the british crown again and so we have the revolutionary war but throughout the revolutionary war you had thousands of mutinies almost immediately because and then, uh, you know, not just mutinies, you had soldiers who maybe would come back from war and they were promised land or money or whatever and never received those things. And so this is the beginning story of America. And it shows that the majority, the majority of people who have existed in this country have always been oppressed. And that is the, the class society that's the rule, right? You have the rule of the few over the many. And that is precisely what is existing in America and has existed since the first day. You know, initially it was the indigenous folks who were the lowest class. Um, but then when they started, you know, having to form, um, and that that's a whole... That's a whole thing. I probably shouldn't have started with that because there's a lot of context to this next thing. But then it was the lowest class of, you know, white settlers in a lot of ways, because in 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 some ways, native folks and white settlers, because settlers massacred people and then pushed them out of those lands, to some extent, they lived separately um, with many interactions most of which were settlers killing native people, taking their land, raping their women, um, and doing absolutely awful things. But at this point in time, the American society in the colonies didn't really write in the indigenous people as people at all. So they weren't even a class, right? And we see that still today bleeding in. Um, and then a new 
version of that would which would become the lowest class but wasn't even like uh reserved a, a spot as any class in the society was um enslaved africans and so you have a new rather than giving the majority of people what they wanted right the poor folks who were there who needed land who needed food who needed you know whatever rather than giving that to the majority of people they gave that to some and then they carved out underneath the rest a spot for a new lowest class and eventually over time those classes bleed into one another you know we we if you read marx you know that eventually over time members of the bourgeoisie are thrown into the proletariat um and time and time again the working class builds the 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 reserve army of the working class builds and this has been true since day one of what we now call america um and it, it it's history because because of the insane and we don't really learn this in history but because of the insane amounts of wealth that these crowns had in spain and in you know in england and in france and portugal and all these places which bookmark that because we're going to talk about that in a second too they were able to create so much wealth that they had so much to give to the you know few members of these classes to appease them and then they had the the insane amounts of wealth like imagine how much it must have cost to get the slaves there and i'm not trying to say like oh like obviously if you've listened to the first 17 minutes of this show i'm sure you assume that i'm not trying to say wow i can't believe we charged so much for slaves that's ridiculous no okay i'm glad i just gotta say that i don't fucking shit whatever um <laughs> but because there was such an insane amount of wealth they were able to just import human beings and enslave them rather than just saying you know what how about we just make an equal society and they're so fucking tethered to that dominance over society that still today still today with 73% of Americans living in economic situations that put them in positions where one missed paycheck, one emergency, say $400 bill, it will take their entire home, it will take their entire savings, they'll probably have to go to into, into debt. That's 73% of Americans. 280 million people. Okay. So... As, you know, this is true, we also know that this this majority is growing. And that's precisely what Howard Zinn talks about in Chapter 23 of his book, The Coming Revolt of the Guards. Um, basically, today in America, unlike any other time before, this middle class that has always been above the lower class um, is becoming the lower class. Um, because they're bleeding into one another. Because the distinction between rich and poor is so, so, so big. The gap between, you know, having the money to survive and needing to work in order to earn the money to survive. The distinction between those two classes is in the billions. Because there's millionaires who still, to some extent, have to work to keep up that millions, right? Because 
the market and the economy as it goes, you know, fewer and fewer hands are truly in control. There might be others who have their own little, you know, fief, fiefdom, their little kingdom. Oh, it's almost like this is all the same. Um, like, uh, I don't know, Big Lots, right? But Big Lots isn't the big player. And that, that also is, it's crucial to know that also, little historical fact that uh, Eduardo Galeano and Howard Zinn both pointed out to me, it really truly wasn't these crowns that had the money. It was the loans that they were receiving that gave them the, the money. The fact that the, the Spanish crown, the English crown, the French crown at that time wasn't even the highest class should really get us to understand truly how insanely wealthy and insanely powerful these very few people are that we're talking about, right? Like, we can't even, we can't even conceive of it in any kind of way that would really contextualize it. But because of that, there are so many human beings, there are, there's so much of humanity that is without that goes without being able to provide for themselves their basic human needs. And that's traumatizing. That is deadly. That is also um, agitational and uh, creates the material conditions for revolution. If you look at the transition from um, absolutism into... Um, oh, geez, the word is escaping me now. Prior to capitalism, you have... It's with all the kings and kingdoms. Come on, Josh, you use the word all the time. What's the word? We're going to pause the show and try to figure that out. I'm not going to cut this out. Hey, guys, so I'm back, and if you didn't know, the word is feudalism. Um, so if you look at the transition from absolutism to feudalism, which... And I might be speaking ignorantly here, but I believe are two distinct um, different historical times. Um, because feudalism, the difference being that you had little fiefdoms, little kingdoms and shit like that. But I, I mean, not for nothing, that might be just the same as like having the big banks that own all the little corporations and shit like that. And that is kind of the metaphor I made earlier, so maybe all of this is wrong, but let's talk about that instead. Um, feudalism to capitalism, right? Um, you had the majority of the population in the society who was not benefiting from, who was not able to support themselves within the systems, institutions, and structures of society that existed at the time. And so... Uh, because the material conditions developed to a point where the majority of people could not provide for themselves, something needed to change. And one way or another, across the world, it happened many different ways in many different places, the world changed. Well, we're at that, that precipice again, right? Where the majority of people do not get their material needs as a human being met on a day-to-day -day basis. Not just in this country across the world the majority of people billions of people do not eat as much as they should or at all do not have homes as often as they should or at all 
do not get the medical care, education, and things that do exist in abundance across the world as they deserve and as a dignified human being should have, right? But that kind of comes into discussing our philosophy, what capitalism's philosophy is. Capitalism's philosophy is profit over people. And if you can deny that, then you're not really paying attention to what's happening because it is distinctly characteristic of capitalism to put profits over people. Look at our healthcare system. Look at our immigration system. Look at our military. Look at everything that exists within our current society, both in America and across the globe, and how much of that exists to make a profit. And now, because you have that massive, massively foundational structure that is based off of profit, there is a subdivision within society, or I should say a, a division, not a subdivision, wrong word. There's a division in society of those who have the power, have the wealth, and have the control, and those who don't, right? And quite often, those who don't also don't have food, homes, proper medical care, education, any kind of living standard that a human being in the 21st century or ever deserves. That's the philosophy of capitalism. And if you, again, if you can deny that, then you're lying to yourself. And you can keep doing that. I can't tell you to stop. But I'm telling you that you're lying to yourself. Um, and that's because there's a reality. And if you choose to ignore it, that's on you. But there's those of us who need to pay attention because there are those of us who are fucking dying because of the reality that exists today. The second thing I really wanted to talk about is uh, kind of evolving into the future, right? Um, and that kind of bleeds into my last two points, so I'm just going to kind of mesh those all together. Um, this progression, this philosophy that we have, um, I find a lot of inspiration as of late in, in learning more and more about indigenous resistance and indigenous peoples in general, right? And one of the philosophies, which, I mean, again, I'm going to butcher it, my apologies, is the, the seven generations uh, philosophy, which um, you have the three generations before you who are guiding you, right, I think. And then you have your current generation, which is building the world that is supposed to be able to support those three generations ahead of you. Um, and... It's, it's quite insane to think that this world might not even be good for another generation. That this earth might truly be at a point where uh, this is the last, like, real, you know, chance of survival. But that should also inspire in us a fire to fight like it truly is the end of the world. Because for millions, if not billions of people across the world today... It is the end of the world every day. They are dying because they do not have food, they do not have housing, you know, all the things that we constantly hit on. And so I think that's something that we here in America are doing that is just truly uh, ignoring that reality and is truly tossing aside the needs of millions is trying to participate in politics. Now, 
this is a point where I probably separate from a lot of people. And I surely understand the usefulness of politics and the recognition that the only way that we get what we want is political domination, is the dictatorship of the proletariat. I'm well aware of this. But as it stands right now, I think that the focus that, quote-unquote, we as the left, uh, which is a very awful phrase that I should probably stop using, um, but we need to stop trying to build, uh, you know, political participants. Because not for nothing, as if you look at Bernie Sanders' AOC and what they have to do to just get those positions in power, first and foremost, they have to... Uh, they have to really cave on a majority of their morals. They have to participate in the very systems which they are working, or supposedly say they are working, to disband. And in a lot of ways, that feeds and festers into opportunism. Uh, and that is precisely what those people are. They are opportunists. Because I'll sit there and clap for every speech that AOC and Bernie Sanders gives that calls into question the problems that American society has created. But what I will not stand by is their actions after that, because in a lot of ways, these people are able to appeal to the rhetoric of socialism, appeal to the rhetoric of the people, but take no concrete steps to truly show that that is their objective. And there is historical evidence to show that this is not new. You know, if you read Lenin, then you know about Kautsky and Plekhanov and all the different social democrats um, who constantly did this very same thing, who uh, transfigured, I don't know if that's the right word, but who completely manipulated Marxism into something that it wasn't and able to appease the masses and also hold on to the system as it existed. Um and that happened during Marx and Engels' time, too. That's what anti-During was. That's what socialism, utopian, and scientific was. Those were letters to people. That's what the critique of the Gotha program was, the letter to Babel were. Um, they were. They were calling into question the opportunism of the parties and the people who called themselves socialists, who called themselves Marxists, and who called themselves communists because as I, I say all the time, there's a way that you can solve these problems that gets to the root of the problem, and there's a way that you can solve these problems that simply alleviates the symptoms. Opportunism is alleviating the symptoms, and even if we say that our objective is destroying the root, if we're not taking concrete steps to kill that root, then it doesn't fucking matter what we say, okay? So I think that we spend way too much time uh, not only cheering on those who already exist in these positions of power, but trying to put more people in those positions of power. Now, here is where I will say, it is incredibly important that we do have those people in those positions of power, because that is an avenue for change. And so we should not just simply say, okay, that's it, no more electoralism. No, but our, our the majority of our time, the majority of our efforts, the majority of our solutions should not come from a system which in its very foundation, as we've already talked about, has no interest in helping people. The, the system that exists, we've talked about this in past episodes, right? But Lenin talks about it in the State and Revolution. The system that exists, the state, okay, we know it as the government, but the state is a, is, it's a organized 
It's an organized structure of oppression by one class over the other. And we know that every three years in between the election, and then on that fourth year we go and vote for people. But, like, the state, the government that exists, wholeheartedly was created by the very people who have dominated over the majority of society since day one. And because it was created by them, it exists to create and perpetuate more of them and to serve those people's interests, to serve the 1%, the ruling class. And so working within those systems to transform those systems and use those avenues that already exist to help people is incredibly important. And it is an insanely useful tactic and an insanely useful tool. But, you know, one thing that we have to understand is that a hammer doesn't do the job for everything. Neither does a screwdriver. Um, and I listen, I've done some work where I've not taken that advice and I stand by that work. But <laughs> um, no, for real, though, like there's there's problems that cannot be solved by electoralism. There are problems that cannot be solved by simply trying to participate in and become a part of the ruling class. Because, again, the longer you exist in that sphere, whether we want to acknowledge this reality or not, the more likely you are to adopt the ideals and the interests of that sphere. That's just normal, you know? I mean, we all know that one white person who hung around too many people and now thinks that he's a gangster or she's a gangster or whatever you know thinks that they're you know from the hood and it's like dude you live in fucking a <laughs> a, two, a, a two floor fucking suburban house but whatever that's a random point that's a person that i'm thinking of specifically but <laughs> uh, but that's real like people are influenced by their environment that's how we all got to be who we are today so it's only natural to expect that then you participate in those systems, you become a part of that class. That's just how that goes. And so that's how opportunism festers. But if we recognize that, then we have to recognize the, the opposite of that, which is, okay, what do we do now then? And so I think something that I've been talking about a lot with my friends and my grandma, of course, um, is dual power. And I've found that a lot of people don't really know what that term means. And I didn't know what that term meant maybe a month ago. So here's my best effort to try to explain what dual power means. So a very good example to look at is breakfast and lunch programs in this country. So for a lot of us, the way that we ate every single day was school, right? You go to school early in the morning and you go sit in the cafeteria and you get your breakfast and then at lunch... You get lunch, right? And that, that was free for a lot of us because that's how we needed it. Because it's ridiculous to expect that any child or any child's family um, should be, you know, doling out that kind of money just to f feed people. Like, you have the food, give it to the kids. But whatever. Um, topic for another day. That was not always a thing. Um, in the 60s and 70s, the Black Panther Party, and it's especially credited to the Chicago Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton, um, created breakfast programs that provided food to inner city children who otherwise would not eat before school, right? Um, whether they couldn't afford it, their parents weren't around because they were at work, or whatever reason, it didn't matter. That 
breakfast program existed for the sole purpose of feeding children. There was no profit being made for the sake of profit. The money that was being made was then being turned around and being spent on food, on facilities, and on providing the very need that those children had, which was hunger. They provided food to feed children. Nixon or Reagan, they're the same person. They are, they're all the same person. One of them didn't like that. And as we know, they really didn't like that. Counter-intel pro, Chicago PD killed Fred Hampton, hold him responsible. Okay, that's real. But what is also real is the reason why the breakfast programs exist in public schools today is because the Black Panther Party showed that without the need of the state, without the help of the state, people were able to help people. That's dual power. Eventually, there's going to come a time where the state offers no solutions to the problems that we have. Because, simply put, it will descend into fascism. That's the path we're on. History just proves that, right? Um, but because of that, there's going to be, and we already know this to be true, there is very few avenues and paths that you can take with electoralism and the state that are going to not just help people. Because I think there's a lot of times that we confuse helping people for solving problems. Um, there are zero state solutions for solving homelessness, for solving mass hunger, for solving mass joblessness. Because those three things create the very conditions that allowed those who are in the state to become members of the ruling class. And so why would they destroy the very conditions that make them the ruling class? And so there's zero solutions within the state to solve these problems, to eliminate these problems. And so what dual power does is show people, and you know, not only does it show people that this is true, that dual power can defeat these problems in a way that the state cannot, just simply cannot, has built into itself, it cannot. But it also provides those needs. You know, the breakfast program showed people in Chicago that they can demand more they can fight for themselves they can build avenues and and things for themselves that help themselves but it also did that um and so that's the importance of dual power and that's something that i've spent a lot of time talking about uh and thinking about lately and i i thought it was important to bring up in this subject because we talked about opportunism, but another thing that's kind of frequent on the left is what we know as accelerationism. This idea that the only thing that's going to bring class consciousness is the destruction of material conditions, the worsening of material conditions, and the suffering of millions of people. And as true as that might be empirically, is that what we want? Do we want just millions of people, billions of people to die so that we can expand class consciousness? No. Um, but it is a possibility, and it is something that's going to happen. So, all in all, my final thing that I wanted to talk about is the importance of theory. And this is kind of a very, you know, murky water to dive into, but it's something that I've found incredibly important in my own life, and so I'd like to share that. In the last six months, I have spent probably the majority of my time reading. 
uh, a lot of different things, whether it's what we might all refer to as theory, you know, Marxists, uh, Leninist texts, but also things like Our History is the Future by Nick Estes, uh, Viverimos, uh, which I butchered, uh, which is by a bunch of different people, which talks about the uh, results of the Venezuelan sanctions and the destruction and death that it is causing. It's a uh, I think it's a compilation of a bunch of different essays and articles and stuff. It's a very great book, but a lot of different things I have read. And I think that I've grown more in the last six months than I could have um, grown in the next 20 years. Um, not necessarily just because of reading, but because of what that reading has forced me to think about. In America today, there's a lot of solutions that are presented that do not solve the problems. Medicare for all does not solve the health care problem in the United States. Um, you know, a lot of government solutions for problems is just simply creating new government agencies, basically what we say as throwing money at problems. And they're not getting to the root of the problem because the root of the problem can only be solved by those who have suffered from those problems. We have to start recognizing that theory is a synthesis of the path that we can take to doing just that. And I know a lot of people might disagree with me, but I would put forward two things. First and foremost, before you disagree with me, read some theory. Because I would have disagreed with me six months ago. I hated fucking people who said read theory because I hate reading. Um... It's incredibly important, and it's the only way that I think that we will be able to do anything in this country that helps anyone. Um, and the second thing I want to say is that, again, there's ways to solve problems, and there's ways that alleviate symptoms. There's been revolutions all over the world since the first day human beings ever existed. A lot of those revolutions have not solved the problems that still today face society. There have been revolutions that have. The Cuban Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. And I'm not talking about the Russian state now, the Chinese state now, or the Cuban state now. I am talking about those revolutions. They created governments. They created culture they created philosophy and they created a recognition of the, the reality of society because i think a lot of times we think of the world we live in as this abstract thing but it's been created it's been molded and we can be those creators and molders right those revolutions showed people that in a lot of ways that we can't show people in america today by participating in electoralism those revolutions at those times have historically led to many other people's movements, revolutions, protracted people's wars, insurrections, whatever you want to call it, that have changed material conditions, that have improved people's lives. And most of those, as we are seeing in India right now taking place, have been Marxist or Marxist-Leninist or Marxist-Leninist-Maoist movements informed by 
theory. And those revolutions have been the ones that have been able to change material conditions, some of whom have been able to enact uh, control, seize control of power. Some people have been able to seize control of power and hold that power and defend that power. And some of these countries have created entirely new societies and been able to defend those societies against the global hegemony of capitalist and imperialist domination. Those societies that have, have been informed by theory, have taken the time to understand that the only way that we can truly fix the problems that we are facing today is by understanding those problems at a level that can only come from reading about them, educating ourselves about them, and on top of that, which Lenin, Marx, all of them talk about by struggling for those changes. Because theory is only so good as its practice. If you take a theory and put it into practice and it doesn't work, that's probably not a good theory, right? So you got to have a theory to inform your practice. But then that practice goes around and boom, informs your theory. The only correction that was ever made to the Communist Manifesto by either Marx or Engels was an implementation of the lessons learned from the Paris Commune because they saw their theory be put into practice and that practice falsified some of their theory it brought new answers and it brought a hell of a lot a hell of a lot more questions that still in a lot of ways have yet to be answered but the russian revolution took on some of those questions the chinese revolution took on some of those questions the uh, cuban revolution the bolivarian revolution the one that exists now and the uh, initial one uh, the the bolivian revolution um, all these what's happening in india pakistan um, uh, all over the world people are seeing these questions being made why is society like this what is creating these problems and rather than saying i don't know but that guy seems like he's got a lot on his mind so why don't we give him four years to see if he's got any idea about what's causing these problems Rather than doing that, we say, I don't know, but let's fucking find out. I mean, that's how we solve any other problem, right? When you have a problem with your car, you take it to the mechanic because they know how to look at that problem and how to fix it. When you have a problem with your body, you go to the doctor. A lot of us don't. I don't get you, people. Um, <laughs> side note. <laughs> um, when you want to learn about something... You learn about it, or you go to people who know about it, and you know you want to fix a problem. You go to the people who have a solution. That just makes sense, right? So why is it then when we transfer that over to politics or philosophy or however you approach Marxism, communism, and socialism, that doesn't transfer over? Why is it that we think picking some random obscure theorist who did absolutely nothing in their country to change the material conditions a hundred years ago is the person whose theory we should be following now? Why is it that we think some fucking random form of communism, some randomly specific form of communism is the solution facing the problems in the world? We are not being dialectic. We are not being realistic. 
and understanding the problems facing the world for what they are. Not what they are on their face, but their context, their history, and how to solve them scientifically. That is how we have to be looking forward. That is how we have to be progressing as a movement. And anyone who dares to say that's not the way to do it, or anyone who thinks that they have a better solution than literally just attacking the problem, literally saying, here's the problems, let's read people who have ideas about how to solve those problems, let's try to put those ideas into practice and try to solve the problems we're facing, Anyone who says that is a bad idea or we should do something different doesn't actually want to solve the problem. We can call that whatever it is, but you know what it is? It's opportunism. It was recognized by Marx and Engels 150 years ago. It was recognized by Lenin 100 years ago. It was recognized by Fidel, and it was recognized by um, uh, Hugo Chavez, and it was recognized by millions of people around the world as specifically what it is, which is not a solution, not going to help anybody, and not what we should be doing. So why is it today in 2021 we're fucking trying it again? As someone who has spent the last six months reading theory and the first 20 years of his life being an ignorant fucking white guy, I can tell you that theory is incredibly important. But theory isn't for everyone, and I recognize that. And that's what this show is supposed to be. And that's why I keep reaching out to other shows that I think are doing a great job of bringing that theory to people in a way that they can understand. And I think that that's what we need to start doing as the left. We need to start reaching out to other people who get it, right? And saying solidarity to you, love to you. Because we're all fighting for that, right? We're all fighting for a new society based off of new, uh, a new reality. But along that search for people, we also have to recognize those who, are opportun those who are opportunists and recognize that it's not our job to educate them. It's also not our job to take meet people where they're at, right? That's another misconception of the left a lot of times. We don't concede our morals to meet people where they're at. We have our stances on everything, and we say anyone who can meet us here is someone we're, we're willing to meet halfway with. But anyone who can disagree with any of the things that we as communists say need to change is not intending to solve the problems that we as communists are intending to solve and are recognizing need to be solved. Because here's the thing, and I've said it before, a lot of people have said it better than me, but I'll say it and then that'll probably wrap up the show. Today like always, there has been millions, if not billions of people who have absolutely no agency over their lives, no control in their lives. Because of that, a lot of them suffer awful economic, you know, conditions, awful uh, psychological conditions, awful, awful just life, quality of life. And then they are also not given the power to do anything to change that, whether they simply do not have the power or they are convinced that they don't have the power. Um, Sorry, there's someone talking outside of the building, so that's kind of weird. No, it's the TV. Um, But yeah, so like it, all of that exists and like we have to recognize that there are ways to solve the problems that are facing the world, the mass homelessness, the mass starvation, the mass hunger, uh, or that mass starvation, mass hunger, same thing, but 
that are killing billions of people across the world. There's a way to solve those problems, and there's a way that mitigates the, the symptoms and perpetuates the very causes of those problems into the future and allows it to continue. We have to, as you would when you were fighting a fire, you know, fixing a car problem, going to the doctor, we have to address the problem at the root and give that problem to the people who have the solutions and take those solutions put them into practice and see if they solve the problem. If they don't, we take it back and we develop new solutions. That's how it is in any other problem, and so that's precisely how it has to be with these problems. Um, if you're still listening, thank you for listening. I appreciate you very much. Uh, go ahead and check out some of my other stuff. It can be found just about anywhere you stream podcasts. Uh, if you like this, but you'd like something in a written form, I have a blog that you can find at forliberation.wixsite.com forward slash website. Uh, you can also find me on social media at Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook at In Defense of Liberation. Uh, and if for any reason you want to reach out to me, for, you know, literally whatever reason you want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at annoyingquestionboy, spelled just like that, uh, no caps, no spaces, at gmail.com. And yeah, that's all I have for you folks today, but I hope you enjoyed the show. I uh, hope you'll come back, and I hope I made it understood kind of a little bit better uh, where I'm coming from, my perspective, my philosophy, and kind of what it is that I think that we need to be fighting for. Because I think we need to recognize, as many before me have, that communism is a necessity for billions of people on this planet today who cannot in any way, shape, or form provide for their very basic human needs. Uh, communism is a solution to that problem, and so we have to fight to work towards that. Uh, and that's what I'm doing, and that's what we should all be doing. So, uh, yeah, if you have any interest in that, uh, I hope you like the show, and I hope you'll continue to listen. Uh, until next time, bye.